Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. A very good afternoon to you and welcome along to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's a monthly publication that sponsors this show. Premier Christianity magazine is published every month. It contains lots of great interviews, just like the ones you're about to hear, as well as features, reviews, columnists, news and more. If you'd like a free sample copy of our latest issue, you can go to our website, Premier Christianity dot com forward slash free sample simply type your details in and we will happily send you a free copy of premier christianity magazine now today on the show we've got not one but two interviews for you first up enel adeagan who works on the news desk here at premier christian radio has been talking to the very well-known worship leader don moen You can hear his story in a moment. And then stick around because after that, Premier's political editor, Martin Eden, has sat down with the Conservative MP, Dame Caroline Spellman. You're going to hear both of those interviews in a moment's time. And if you're listening to this on Premier Christian Radio, you can actually get the full interview on the Profile podcast. We've got space on the podcast to air the entire conversation. You'll get a slightly shortened one if you're listening on air today. So if you want to check out the podcast, just head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. All the links are there, including to our back catalogue of interviews available on the Profile podcast, over 100 conversations that we as a team here at Premier have conducted with all manner of different people, sports stars, musicians, politicians, church leaders, worship leaders and many more. But now without any further ado, let's listen in to the first part of today's show. This is Enor Adegan in conversation with Don Moen. So Don, I have to say it's um, it's great to see you alive and well, <laughs> Yeah. Um, especially I'm talking about yeah. that Twitter death. Oh, last I year oh how, i know it's how terrible. bizarre was that that was bizarre i mean i've had it happen a few times to a smaller degree but this one somehow this uh, rumor of my death went around the world and boy i had hundreds and hundreds of people calling me and and emailing me and saying are you alive uh but it was uh and we still couldn't figure out who who did it. It came from like the Houston Chronicle, some online thing. But uh, yeah. How did that make you feel? Well, you know, the one nice thing is people said nice things about me. <laughs> there was panic here <laughs> they, in Premier, I have yeah. to tell you. I mean, it was terrible. I think I think uh, Muiwa called me as well. I mean, it's. Uh, but I, when you get a oh, that news goes around, and how do you stop? You can't stop it. Uh, but you know, I, I, I said I read the things that people said about me, and at least they didn't say, "Oh, thank God, he's gone." <laughs> they said nice things <laughs> about me. So it gives so one you, good thing that came gives, out of it. Yeah, it gives you a little bit of a preview of. <laughs> Let's take it back <laughs> yeah, a bit. Okay. You're still here. Yeah. Um, back to the fifties, Minnesota, where you yeah. were born. Yeah. What was it like growing up in the 50s there? Well, uh, Minnesota, I mean, it's like uh, the the town where I was raised is uh, really a small town. I mean, Norwegians and Swedish people and very cold uh, and conservative. It was a conservative little town and um, and it was uh, everybody knew everybody. I loved it. I love being in a small town. And uh, there was music around our house all the time. My mother uh, was the piano player in the church. Um, Mom got saved, and uh, my my dad was confirmed in the Lutheran church. Mom and dad were married in a united church. And then my mother got saved and went to an Assemblies of God church, a Pentecostal church. And then my dad never went to church with us anymore. So mother would take us to church. And what would dad do? Oh, he'd stay at home. Okay. Yeah, he would stay at home because he didn't like, it was a little too weird for him. It was too rid, uh, religious and too many. Uh, all he knew is one day and mom and he and mom could go out dancing 
or go to a movie or he could have a beer and then suddenly he she she took off her earrings to no makeup you know because it was the oh, really she went all okay oh totally Serious. Okay. totally conservative right and all these rules and regulations so you know that's the church i was raised in i never went to a movie till i was uh 18 years old because my mother oh, said really? okay. if you go to a movie and jesus comes back you'll be left behind i quit did you believe that no uh, did oh. i believe it then yeah as in so well i was afraid yeah i was really a, it's like really oh my gosh it did, but it never quite connected with me and uh I played trombone, uh, that was my minor instrument, so I played in a jazz band, and my mother said, Donnie, they play music with a beat, and when you play music with a beat, people dance, and when people dance, bad things happen, so you need to quit the jazz band. Right. Wow. uh, And you you did? I did. I did, and I I really, I regret it, because I, I don't think it was a real good testimony, but, you know, having said all of that, I still am very, very thankful for the way I was raised. It was a church where uh, you you would go to the altar at the end of the service and, and just pray and spend time with the Lord. And my pastor would play his guitar and sing, and I think it's what put the early... Um, seeds into my heart for leading worship. I loved the presence of the Lord. So while it was, it, the, I think, too uh, many rules and regulations, it still gave me a love for uh, the presence of the Lord and a love for God's Word. And I was the youth director there for a while. Boy, and when those church doors were open, we were in church. Oh. And, uh, and my mother, uh, one one night, my, one of my sisters and I were watching this uh, uh, TV uh, series, and it came on Sunday night. It was the final episode of the series. Okay. And uh, it was time for a youth group, Sunday night youth group in church. And my, and my mother uh, sa- said, uh, it's time to go to church. And my sister, Diane, said, oh, Mom, we want to just stay and watch the last episode of this, uh, of this TV show. And she says, well, I just hope you don't miss heaven someday. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, mom had a way of uh, kind of manipulating. Said, Did that okay, work? We got, yeah, we got up and went to church, yeah. How many siblings do uh, you I have? have an older brother and two younger sisters. So... You know, your mum did a really good job, it seems, of it, well, instilling the fear of the Lord, <laughs> for one thing, in yeah, you. Yeah. When did that, your relationship with with God become more a relationship that you had because you wanted it, aside from yeah. what your, your mother was well, trying that, to instill in you? That's one of the things I really had to work at, is just learning how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And when anybody is raised, and I'm, a lot of, I've talked to a lot of people that have been raised really conservatively and you know the church makes the rules and what I wanted to do was hear the Holy Spirit I wanted the Holy Spirit to tell me this is right this is wrong and it took me a few years to just figure that out to to uh, not hear the voice of the my church rules but to really seek the Holy Spirit's voice and hear what he wants me to do so it took a few years but I um, uh, you know, I started traveling with a singing group all over the world, and I realized that in every different uh, city, every different country, there are different rules and regulations. You know, like you, some churches you could do this, but you couldn't do this. Other churches you could do this, but you couldn't do this. And I began to see, mm, it doesn't all add up. Let's all decide that we're going to press in closer to Jesus. We're going to seek more of Jesus. And and stop with all these rules and regulations, right. you know. So I had to work at it several years, but uh, I think if we listen, the Holy Spirit is very capable of telling us, "I don't want you doing that," or yeah. "This is, you know, this is the way. Walk in it," you know. So you mentioned a trombone, but obviously you play and yeah. sing and write. You know, yeah. music is a big part of yeah. your life. So what was then, after the trombone, where, where did you go on your musical journey? Well, m- piano started everything. My mother forced us all to, uh, all my siblings, we had to take six years of piano. 
and I hated it. Oh, and did. I would I would pound the keys of the piano, and, and my mother would say, Donnie, we buy the clothes you wear. We provide the bed you sleep in. We provide the food you eat. You will play the piano. So uh, I determined that if, if I ever grew up and got married and had children of my own, I would never abuse my children like that. Now, Laura Do you and I see have it as five, abuse. Well, the, uh, the, the full verbal thing, abuse. Okay, yeah. okay. And and we had uh, so I uh, now Laura and I have five children, and they've all heard the same speech, and they all had to take six years of piano. We they buy the clothes you wear, Don. <laughs> sure, but they all they all they all play piano uh, at the anyway, end of it. Sure, I mean I think it's a good foundation. So it started with piano, and then violin was was my. Uh, second instrument, and that became my major. And trombone is something I picked up, and then eventually guitar and different things. But violin was my major instrument, and that's what put me through college. And 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 then trombone was my minor, you know, instrument. And piano, I didn't even really think about piano. I had no idea. I would have practiced a lot harder uh, <laughs> if uh, if I would have known I was going to be doing what I was doing. But you know, that's it's interesting. I didn't start playing the piano again until I was well into college, and um, and I started traveling with this singing group. And then I started right. writing and arranging, and then I, with writing, you have to really be able to understand how to play a bit. And uh, so that's yeah. That then now piano became much more of a uh, important instrument to me. And singing, I would I sang in choirs, but I'd never wanted to sing in front of people. But did you, you you knew you had that gift that you could sing? I don't know that I knew that, no. Hmm. I mean, I, I didn't ever feel confident to be a singer. I did in choirs and stuff, but I it's like I, I didn't have this thing like, this is what I want to do the rest of my life, um, especially in a, more of a soloist. Right. Uh, I did not like being on a stage in front of people. And... Um, I failed my speech class at university because I couldn't speak in front of 15 people. What would happen? Was oh, I just want to burst into tears and run off the stage. Oh. <laughs> I'm thinking about doing that right now. Burst, no. <laughs> what? No, no. But it's, yeah, it's, I just was, you know, you, you hear yourself speak and you begin to, you know, uh, you know, second guess everything you're saying. Yeah, I used to do that. And, I just uh, I failed my class because I, I I missed my final exam. I just couldn't stand in front of fifteen people and give the speech. Just a speech. Oh, okay. So that's what happened. But I so the fact that I'm doing what I'm doing, right, is quite a miracle. I mean, Laura's my wife's one of her sisters wrote a letter many years ago to us, and she was praying for Laura and uh, sharing some personal things. And she said, as I was praying for you, I saw a picture, a vision of Don standing in front of thousands of people, leading them into God's presence and writing songs that soothe the hearts of kings. At what point in your life was this? This is before I ever led worship. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is like uh, probably, you know, I had maybe just begun doing some writing and stuff. But it's like I said to Laura, she read that letter. I said, well, honey, Susan, your sister Susan is a great girl, but she's not a prophet. There's no way I'm going to stand in front of thousands of people and sing. Oh, if and, only you knew. And a couple of years ago, she found that letter in her oh, Bible. Wow. She read it, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I guess she was a prophet. So Laura and her family, your wife, they were Christians as well, yeah. like she grew up in. Laura was, uh, Laura was raised very conservatively. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Amish. Yes. Oh. Horse and buggies. Yes. That's the way she was raised. Wow. In fact, a lot of her relatives in Pennsylvania to this day. They still live in that yes, kind of community. They're driving wow. horse and buggies. Do you visit them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we must visit them. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating. Um, wow. They're super conservative. In mm. fact, the very first picture I have of Laura, she's in, um, uh, she has a little Amish bonnet on, <laughs> and because her father sent her to English school. But it's, uh, you know, it's against their religion. Thou shalt not have any graven images. So oh. a photograph is, is a graven image to them. Yeah. 
So all these, you want to talk about rules? Okay. There's a lot of rules there. <laughs> You're liberal for yeah. her. <laughs> yeah, right. But that's the way she was raised. So how did, how did the two of you meet? Her, well, we met at Oral Roberts University. Her father got saved. Uh, and I've told Billy Graham this story, and I've told Franklin Graham this story. But he, he got kicked out of his church for uh, purchasing a power saw. Uh, he was a carpenter. He could use somebody's power saw right. with electricity, but he couldn't own it. Owning it was a sin. He so he out. said to the elders, this doesn't make sense. I'm going to buy one. So the elders came to their house, and they excommunicated him from the church, which meant he couldn't sleep in the same room as her mother, he couldn't, as his wife. He couldn't eat at the same table as the family. He was shunned. Wow. And... So he thought, well, since I'm really living, you know, excommunicated, he got a hold of a transistor radio, which is also a sin, but he got a hold of radio, <laughs> and he heard Billy Graham give a simple gospel message on the radio, and he knelt down in the orchard, and he said, I'm going to find out if this is real, and uh, he, he accepted Jesus. He said the sky got bluer, the trees and the grass got greener, and uh, he smoked a pack and a half of cigarettes a day. He stopped smoking immediately. He, he was dramatically saved. And then little by little, he kept praying for the family, and his, then her mother got saved, and then all the kids got saved. And they started, uh, they started going to a church in Pittsburgh. Um, where, ever heard of Catherine Kuhlman? The old faith healer. Okay. They started going to her church, mm. and then eventually Laura went to Oral Roberts University, and that's where I met her on a on a tennis court. She was a horrible tennis player, and what about you? you I good? was a pretty good player, and I was having a serious game with uh, my friend, and these girls were down the, one of the other courts, and they were playing tennis like badminton, like, <laughs> and their ball kept dribbling in dark court. And I said, oh, my gosh, these girls are terrible. So I flipped the ball over there, and we have a serious match. Um, into our court comes a little tennis ball again. Finally, after about the fifth time I looked, and I thought, well, she's pretty cute after all. <laughs> so I, I saw her in a, in a, in a lunch line uh, cafeteria. I said, ah, the tennis pro, it's there you are. Again. And, it, and I thought, I think I like this girl. And and the first date we had, I said, "This is the one I want to marry." So, because you you got you two got married quite young, your early twenties. Yeah, I good? was uh, twenty. Uh, I was twenty two, and Laura was twenty. <laughs> and we got. I'm married. guessing it wasn't the tennis that made you know she was no, one. No, how, no. How did you no. know this is the girl for uh, me? I just, I just knew. I mean, I just knew, and she was dating another guy, kind of then too. But I. I t after our first date, I just knew this is the girl that I'm going to marry, and I and oh, here's a story. I actually, that was '71 when I met her, and '72, I was traveling with this singing group, and I and I just I wanted to propose to her, so I scrapped, uh, uh, scraped all my money together and bought a engagement ring, and I flew. We had about a three or four day break. I flew to Tulsa where she was still going to school and I uh, proposed to her and and she fainted. No. Oh yeah she I, which I took as a no. <laughs> yeah the, the one thing fainted. yeah she literally started passing out I had to catch her and wow. uh, and she so that's the biggest fear that and when you propose to a girl that like, that they're going to say no, well, so did she, you and she reminds her and wait. She so reminds me. She yes. goes, "I did. I didn't say no." I said, "Well, you fainted. I took that as a no." <laughs> and so, um, yeah, she uh, and so we broke up, and uh, I went back on tour, and uh, and I just uh, did a lot of soul searching, and I thought, "Do I want Laura more than I want the Lord in my mm. life?" And I decided I have to, I have to follow what the Lord wants me to do. If Laura comes along with that, great. But I, I can't, I can't choose her over the Lord. So there was a process of about six weeks, and uh, 
little by little, um, the Lord uh, brought us back together. Um, and then she actually came to travel with me on the tour as a nanny for the evangelist. And, um, and we were uh, a whole year together. And I didn't dare ask the question again <laughs> until uh, we were in South Africa, in Johannesburg, on a tour. And, suddenly, and I just kind of knew it's time. And so I sold my bass guitar, and I went down and bought her a diamond, uh, bought this ring, and I bought her a diamond, and that was April of 73, and we were married May of 73, <laughs> one month one later. Month. We wow. were in Africa for like a year, Yeah. And, and we had this tour back in the U.S., and there was one city, Minneapolis, where we were going to be for two days. I said, that's where we'll get married, and we did, after a concert. And um, the wedding started at 10 o'clock at night. We were in a theater that night. And we invited anybody that wanted to stay for the wedding. So I had about 1,000 people I didn't know at my wedding. And uh, and we had one day off. And the next night, we were in Des Moines, Iowa, staying with uh, the another family. That's That was our life. Wow. You know, John, if I had your CV in front of me, I was looking through like what you... I was just really interested in, you know, who is this Don? Like before you became the man that's so mm-hmm. well loved. And there's, you've really put in a lot of years in, in, yeah. in each place that you've yeah. been placed. You, you know, yeah. there's more than a decade on the road with someone. And mm-hmm. then before you're moving on to, right. to someone else, did, is that, where did, where do you think that came from? This, this spirit to, I need to stay and develop and, and be in this yeah. place until I move on? Where did that come from? Mm, well, that is, uh, uh, I think, you know, my whole life, I haven't like written out things. This is what I want to do by the time I'm 25, by the time I'm 30, by the time I'm 35. I just kind of walked through the doors that the Lord opened for me. And when the Lord opens a door, and until he shuts the door, um, I just kept doing what he had what he had called me to do. There is something important about being faithful, and it's not always going to be great, but that's a learning process. Um, that's where the rough edges were knocked off of me, I think. Um, it was like a boot camp and Bible school all in one. Was this with um, the Terry Living Law Sound, Ministries? Terry or Law, when? Terry okay. Law. And that, but that, because I stayed there for so long, More that's than a, where a I. Decades. Yeah, it? well, 15 years, 15 really. 15 years, wow. Yeah. But it was a decade on the road. Mm. Um, a decade, 10 years of touring, where we did um, almost three concerts every day, about 340, 50 days a year. I mean, that, a morning school concert, an afternoon school concert, and an evening uh, a concert at a church or a. Or a uh, some kind of a venue, we would have a Bible study. We would do the concert. We would counsel with people to pray with them. And then we'd go and stay in somebody's home, not hotels, stay in a home, and we'd get up and do the same thing the next day for 10 years. That's like a 1,000 concerts a year wow. for 10 years, 10,000 concerts. Ground. Yeah, so people ask me, hey, I want to do what you're doing. I said, well, um, uh, carry your own gear around. And, um, you know, set it up, tear it down, and do 1,000 concerts a year for 10 years. And, and you, you know what? After that, I never took Don Moen too seriously anymore because <laughs> the rough edges get knocked off. Right. Uh, these days, so many people can create incredible art in a vacuum. We have a studio, and you can have a studio in your home, in your bedroom, a spare bedroom. You've got a great studio, and you can create a whole album. And and yet, when you get in front of people, you don't really have a lot to say because, you know, that, that process of just sticking to something and being humbled and being and being a servant, serving, you know, those those things build character. Yeah. And I think that's really important. So I, we have to talk about um, your time with um, the series you did with Hosanna Music because I think so many people like right. myself that's what we we grew up yeah. hearing like yeah. i i knew your voice before i knew your yeah. your <laughs> name what was i mean that's god will make a way yeah. that's the title of your your new book yeah. and that it's it's a song that means so much to people 
I wonder when you're writing your music, do you, once you've finished a song, do you know this, this one, this is it. This is, this is going to like go far. Do you get that feeling? Yeah. And some songs I do, uh, I did with God. Well, the thing is with God will make a way. I didn't write it for a project. I didn't write it to be recorded. Uh, in fact, I wrote it before uh, I ever did anything. I think I was just starting to do something with Integrity Music. Yeah, I wrote it in 87 when my nephew was killed in a car crash. Um, 86, I had recorded Give Thanks. So I had just started doing things. But the song I wrote, uh, God Will Make a Way, I just wanted to give to the family, um, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, because I knew there would be days when... When after the funeral, uh, they would um, wonder where God was, and and all they saw was hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to let them know that God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. And I wanted that's what I know the Holy Spirit gave me to say to them. Um, so I just recorded it and gave them a recording. I said listen to this when the, when you have those dark days um and that was it a so gift it was, for a family but that became a gift to yeah, the world right i know and it was, so i didn't sing it for a couple of years until uh maybe two years later i was uh leading worship for our our staff at integrity music i was with integrity music for 20 years and I was, uh, we had a chapel service once a week, and, and I just, like the Holy Spirit brought this song back to me, and I sang it for the staff. And everybody came up to me and said, where did you get that song? And everybody needed to hear that day, God will make a way. And they said, you need to record that. I said, well, I don't think I ever will. It's a personal uh, song and just for my family. Uh, yet I did record it, and uh, and now it's become... One of my most well-known songs, and and it was written in a desperate situation, but it's not a song of desperation. It's a song of declaration. God I, will make a way. And so, so many people use that song. I have personally to, you know, get their heart in that place that's yeah. ready to to worship. Yeah. Um, but for you, Don, how do you get to that place of worship where your heart is open and you know, you, you're in that place with your father and you can connect with him. I think uh, being vulnerable is important uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, receiving from God. Um, you know, when people are desperate, um, when they go through a difficult period, um, the first response is, I'm going to fix this. I can fix this by myself. And then when you get to the place where... Uh, you, you can't fix it by yourself anymore. Um, you have to cry out to God and, and, and kind of turn it over to him. And I think God is waiting for us to do that all, all along. And it's, it's like if we you know, want to do it ourselves, I think God says, okay, let me know how that goes. You try to figure it out for yourself. Uh, even when it comes to finances, you want to... Um, uh, you, you say, God will provide all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But I want to have about, you know, five years stored up just in case he doesn't provide all my needs. That's just our human nature. But I think when we get to the place where we need a miracle, that's when God can do a miracle. So um, it's an interesting thing. God wants us to be vulnerable. Uh, and totally dependent upon him. You look all through the scriptures. It's, you know, the children of Israel, all through the Old Testament, against all odds, you know, they were outnumbered, and yet God delivered them from their enemies. And that's what God loves to do. And But we've just gotten to the place where we want to have a plan B in place just in case he doesn't come through. And, and, uh, God wants to be our deliverer. He wants to be our provider. And and uh, I, I just think that is a scriptural, scriptural principle that we need to learn. Uh, even when it comes to, let's, let's talk about 
giving and finances. God wants us to give our first fruits, and we we want to say, well, if I can, if I have this this money, I can invest it and make more for God. But when you give your first fruits away, you're basically giving your future away. But you're saying, my future is in God's hands, and 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 then you're, you're totally dependent upon Him. So I, I just think. That's where God wants us, and that's how I think I've learned uh, to worship more deeply is by allowing myself to be vulnerable. And, you know, none of us like to be there. I don't like to be vulnerable, but that's, uh, you know, that's, I think, where God can use us the most when we're completely uh, transparent and uh, dependent upon Him. Uh, he, he's always, always ready to make a way. It's just, are we willing to let him make a way for us? <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Don. I can't believe the time has just flown by. Well, my questions, have, I took too long at no, answering all my questions. No, it was just so interesting. I was you like, made I me forgot tell, that I'm doing an you interview. You made me tell all these stories that I don't so ever tell. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, In no, fact, I'm I glad. need to write another book and include all the, sto- all the stories. <laughs> all these, we, I mean, you've got got quite a number of stories definitely could make a book well when i was writing the book too it's like they uh they said um i i had all these stories and i and they wanted to include all these stories i said you don't want all those don moan stories in there they said no that's we want the stories and then we do a spiritual principle on the story on the stories no it's great i mean i had a, a, a billion questions to ask you but it was really lovely to yeah, feel like to get it. to know you as a person. Thank you. After growing his Californian congregation from 30 members to 6,000, Francis Chan turned his back on the American megachurch model. Look at churches. There are so many who exist that are not making disciples. People are not getting baptized and yet they're spending a fortune. How is it then that the underground church in China grew to 100 million people? Inspired by churches in Asia, the acclaimed preacher believes he's now promoting a more authentic expression of Christianity. Read the full interview with Francis Chan exclusively in this month's Premier Christianity magazine. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the monthly publication that sponsors this show and indeed this podcast. If you're listening on Premier Christian Radio and you'd like to access past shows, the podcast is a great way of doing that. Simply go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. All the links are there to check out past episodes. You can listen on the go from your mobile phone, tablet, wherever you are, to our back catalogue of profile interviews. premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. But now in the second part of today's show, I'm pleased to say our political editor, Martin Eden, has sat down with the Conservative MP, Dame Caroline Spellman. Let's listen in to their conversation. Caroline, you were born and grew up in Bishop Stortford, and since 1997 you've been MP for Meriden, often described as the centre of England. How has this Midlands background influenced your politics? Well, uh, I actually grew up in a little tiny village called Henham in Essex. So I am actually an Essex girl, uh, but I went to school in Bishop Stortford. Um, and when I decided uh, to embark on politics, and for me it was a calling, you really have to be prepared to go anywhere. You know, you cannot tell what place will choose you and have you. And um, I uh, had 27 rejections from constituencies around the UK, so you can't fault me on perseverance. And at the sort of last chance saloon, um, the Meriden constituency suffered a tragedy when the MP died just before the general election in 1997, and bless them, they chose me. Good choice. Now, Caroline, you're very open about being a Christian. When did you first make a commitment to Christ? 
Well, I grew up in a Christian family, so dad was church warden and my mum taught in Sunday school, so it wasn't exactly optional, I think. Um, I, I, I definitely made my commitment as a child, but through my teens I rebelled a bit and didn't want to go to church. Um, my parents, I think, were quite wise and didn't force me. So it was really when I um, started at university in London and I just sat down next to some girls on the first evening who I became friends with and they happened to be Christians and on the Sunday they went off to church in London and they took communion and I thought to myself this is ridiculous I believe in this and so I got on and got confirmed. Now how has your faith influenced your politics? Well as I said at the beginning through a sense of vocation I think a lot of people um, for whom faith is important um, pray about what they should do with their lives with the talent that God has given us and I was actually quite surprised that the idea of politics turned up um, I don't come from a political dynasty um, in fact I rather dismissed the call to begin with you know, it's a little bit like a tap on the shoulder isn't it and my reaction was what an MP I don't know anything about it and I, I didn't I didn't completely ignore it but I think when you're called into a vocation I don't think God lets you go you know it keeps coming back and keeps coming back as you can tell it wasn't easy uh, to fulfill that vocation but um, I think that it is something that with a strong faith you want to do you want to put the talents that God has given you at the disposal of his work. So how does prayer help you cope with the hassles and pressures of politics and there's no doubt this week, this year, there's an awful lot of those. Well, uh, you're interviewing me on the morning of uh, high pressure in Parliament as um, we are looking at amendments on the Brexit legislation. And I, I, I won't disguise from you, I lay awake a fair amount last night and I prayed because there's a lot of pressure on me with one of the amendments, um, a lot of pressure for public reaction to that. And I often find at night, actually, when I'm quiet, um, that's often when I can pray. There's a lovely um, phrase in the Psalms where David says, you know, even at night, my heart instructs me. And I sometimes find that's a better time for listening. Sometimes the situation in Parliament is so charged and so difficult, you have to sort of offer up an arrow prayer, as in help, you know, help. <laughs> uh, because one's not quite sure how to deal with the immediate situation or just wanting to check the words before they come out of my mouth so they come out the right way. I think it's, you know, prayer is just something that is part of daily life their country. And, you know, frankly, I was embarrassed. Right. You've been a Conservative MP since 1997 and were chair of the party in 2007. Why were you a Conservative? Because when I grew up, our country was in a bad place. Uh, we had a reputation as the sick man of Europe. Our economy was really struggling. We had to go to the IMF for loans and I felt that the Labour government of the day had mismanaged the running of the country. Uh, we had continuous strikes, um, things were in short supply, my school wasn't open five days a week, people couldn't even get the dead buried uh, one particular time in my experience. So I'm, I'm a bit naturally sceptical of socialism uh, and um, I have leaned towards conservatism and that's the, really the, ba the basic divide and the basic explanation for why I became a conservative. Now you've held high office in government and in opposition. You were Shadow Secretary for International Development, later for local and devolved government. But in 2010, you were made Secretary of State for the Environment and Rural Affairs. How demanding is it to hold high office, to be on top of your subject and still a member of parliament and have a stable family life? <laughs> well, it's not easy. I have three children um, who are grown up now. When I entered parliament, they were six, four and two. I think it was quite hard for them when I was a cabinet minister because it is all ours. There is no free time at all. And uh, you have to bring home these red boxes full of documents that you have to work through at the weekend. And I used to have about eight hours of paperwork as Secretary of State. But I did love working on the subject of environment. It's something that's very close to my heart. 
had quite a difficult time when I was Secretary of State at DEFRA, but I'm very fond of that department and remain very interested in it. But I think it's very important to give back to your family. And now that I'm on the back benches, actually, I'm really rather enjoying my children in their 20s. uh, when we got through the teens now and you know we have good times together my husband has faithfully supported me through 30 years of politics so I must give my thanks publicly to him now it is pressured you are under pressure today you've already said that as a frontline politician has that ever conflicted with your Christian faith and conscience having to say things perhaps you don't always believe in well, it's interesting. People think it will be a problem, but in our parliament, actually, moral matters are often a free vote. This is something very precious in British democracy. You know, in some other countries, moral issues are fall on party political lines. But here, if we debate uh, moral subjects like euthanasia or abortion or capital punishment, you're completely free of the whips telling you which way to vote. You are free to vote with your conscience. That's something I hope will never change because I think it, it's very important for the quality of the debate. Uh, when um, after the election in 2015, we had another vote on euthanasia. And we've only voted on that twice in my time as a parliamentarian, 22 years. And I was concerned, actually, that uh, attitudes will have changed. There was a lot of pressure in the press um, to relax laws on euthanasia. Um, And I found it very interesting that the majority remained exactly the same. And I think as a Christian, respecting the principle of the sanctity of life, uh, that was something I was very encouraged by. Can I ask you this? As a Christian, how do you react to Crispin Blunt's motion to stop prayer in Parliament? Yes, I, the, Crispin hasn't got a lot of support for this. I think there's just a handful of MPs that uh, want to end prayers in Parliament. Most people of all faiths and none actually quite enjoy the prayers at the start of the day. You know, it's a moment of reflection. Most people learn Christian prayers in school, so actually they're quite able to say them by heart. And it's, you know, we turn away from looking at each other and we're actually just looking at the backs of our colleagues. And it also allows one to reflect on their needs. You know, sometimes, for example, you're looking and you think of somebody who's recently lost somebody in their family or someone who's just going through a really hard time, perhaps in the media, and just needs that extra prayer. And I think it's something very precious in our day. And I think his, his, his case for it makes it difficult to, to book your place for the session that day, we could find ways around that. We could find elegant solutions to that. But given the religious foundation of Parliament and the value that the prayers bring every day and the skill with which the present chaplain extemporises prayer and has earned respect, I'd be sorry to see them go. Now, turning more centrally to politics, this month you've organised a letter with Jack Domey, who's a a Labour MP, Uh, And you got support for over 200 other MPs asking the Prime Minister to prevent a no-deal Brexit. What made you do that? So Jack's my next-door neighbour in the West Midlands, and we both have large numbers of uh, particularly young people who've got work in manufacturing as a result of its renaissance in the West Midlands. And our concern is the uncertainty over Brexit is putting jobs at risk. In fact, we've already lost seven and a half thousand in total and it that is a huge human cost so and he and I both have large numbers of people who've got work in the car industry in particular and the uncertainty over Brexit is uh, costing jobs it's not the only reason that uh, thousands of jobs have been lost in, in the West Midlands recently but it is having an impact so For about the last six months, we as West Midlands MPs have been meeting cross-party as a group and meeting with the management of the the car companies to learn what we can do to help. And we decided just before Christmas to write to the Prime Minister. And by the return of Parliament in January, we had 225 MPs from six parties from all over Great Britain supporting this letter. Leavers and Remainers. The one thing that unites us is that we don't want to crash out without a deal on the 29th of March. And if we were to do that, what do you foresee would be the consequences of a total no-deal Brexit? 
The danger with a no-deal Brexit is that it instantly makes the goods that we manufacture for export less competitive because then they attract taxes on them under World Trade Organization terms, which means that it's more expensive product to sell in our principal market. And it begs the question, why would you make cars in the UK if they're going to be 10% more expensive for the European market? Of course, it would be more interesting to make them on the continent. And that's a huge risk to the car industry and to other manufacturers. But, you know, almost every day now we hear from different businesses that are at risk from a no-deal Brexit. Uh, Just yesterday we heard from the supermarkets that because 30% of our food is imported from the EU, actually they may have difficulty keeping their shelves stocked. We heard from security firms saying that they're very worried about the risks. The National Farmers Union has come out and said, please, let's not have a no-deal Brexit. It doesn't mean I'm blocking Brexit. I accept the result of the referendum. I know we're going to have to leave, but I want to do it in orderly fashion with a deal, and I support the Prime Minister's deal. Now, in the context of this debate on Brexit, a no deal would mean a hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And that's the one thing everybody doesn't want. Is that not true? Yeah, I grew up uh, at a time when the troubles were in full swing, I'm afraid. So it, it, it does have a very big, uh, left a big impression on me. I worked in London during a number of terrorist attacks in London. And, you know, I was blown off the seat in my office by one of those. Um, so I'm very aware of the importance of the Good Friday Agreement and trying to make sure that we uh, respect it in whatever agreement we reach. That does mean that the Prime Minister is going to have to find some more concessions regarding the backstop. Um, But I actually think that rather than threatening the other European countries with a disorderly Brexit where we crash out without a deal, which will harm our economy and theirs, I would turn it into a positive. And I would say, look, uh, we'll take no deal off the table if in return you will give us the concessions that we need to get the deal approved in our parliament. And that would, for example, include a solution to the uh, Northern Ireland question. Now, you have an amendment uh, tabled to the Prime Minister's motion on the Withdrawal uh, Act today uh, that rejects the no-deal option. Um, That is the default position. If nothing happens now, that is what will happen. So, how likely is it that your amendment will be voted on and passed? Well, first of all, it has to be selected, and that's in the hands of the Speaker, who has a lot of power. He has a lot of amendments to choose from today, and mine is just one of them, although it has a lot of support from MPs across parties, so I hope he will select it. But my argument would be that if you can clearly demonstrate in Parliament that there is a clear majority for no-to-no deal, there's at very least a moral imperative for the government to avoid that happening. Now, I actually think the logic is if you support no-to-no deal, that means you must support a deal. And I'm going to be urging members on all sides of the House today to have an outbreak of pragmatism and really get down around the negotiating table, all parties, work out what the common ground is and get a deal through Parliament. I think the public really are getting very, very weary with the Brexit debate. And I think we don't want to delay, if at all possible, our departure, uh, but actually just get a deal that works. Now, your Meriden constituency voted 56 to 44 percent to leave. How has that influenced your attitudes in voting on this subject? Yes, um, I was a Remainer, so that was a disappointing result for me um, because I was worried about the impact this would have on on the jobs in livelihoods in my area. But as a Democrat, I have to respect the results of the ballot box. And even by a narrow margin, I think it's important that we deliver uh, what the public uh, asked for. I don't think they necessarily asked for a no-deal Brexit, but they have asked the, the government of the day to enable us to leave the European Union. And essentially, that's what the withdrawal agreement is. Uh, It got roundly castigated when it was first um, made public, but I actually think people should have a fresh look at it. It basically allows the UK to trade on preferential terms with the EU while putting a stop to free movement, which a lot of people locally told me they wanted to see. So I think the, the basic agreement, plus perhaps some concessions with regard to the backstop, could gather enough support in Parliament to get it through. Can I just pick up a point in that answer? Um, a lot of people wanted to end free movement, but 
aren't we in serious difficulties recruiting doctors and nurses who formerly came from Europe and we still need them? Well, I, I remember that I was a Remainer, so actually I think that migrant labour brings a positive to the host nation. And I think uh, there was a lot of negative publicity in the press about uh, migrant workers in this country. But if you actually look at the jobs they do, sometimes they do the jobs that we are not able to do. You point to the way the NHS depends on uh, doctors and nurses who come from other countries and that's absolutely true I could point to the fields of Lincolnshire and say that you know picking the Brussels sprouts in the teeth of winter tends to be something that we need migrant labour for seasonal labour for um, but I have to accept that uh, the public were very anxious about the lack of control of our borders that free movement implies and, and uh, you know it's, we're not the only country grappling with this issue you know, see what's happening in America, though I don't advocate building a wall. You know, the thing is that most of Europe's um, advanced democracies are struggling with the issue of global mass migration. So I wouldn't be surprised in the fullness of time to see the European institutions do something about reforming the freedom of movement. But that hasn't come in time for us, and we're having to deal with it now and find a way that works, that gives the public the assurance that we do have proper control of our borders. Now, there appears to be a very worrying level of disenchantment with politicians at the moment. Why is that and what might be done to restore respect for Parliament and politics? Well, I don't think politicians have ever been in very good standing. I've, I've looked at some you know, old cartoons uh, by Hogarth of politicians and they're not depicted in a very good light either. I think probably you know, it's easy to, to blame the, the politicians for the things that go wrong. I do think, how, however, that um, it is much more challenging in an era of fake news. I, I really struggled during the referendum campaign to get people to take seriously the facts I was sharing with them. You know, people did not accept factually that the European Union is the principal market for our manufactured goods, but that is simply a fact. And, and I think um, that's made life much more difficult for politicians. I find the communications I now have with constituents are often informed by fake news that they've read about in social media, and it's quite hard to battle to get the truth across and to, and, and to help enable them to believe it. Uh, and I'm not sure what the answer is, but I, but I think that you know, responsibility in journalism is really key. Now, you have a constituency surgery, I presume, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Do people turn up and yep. tell you what they want, how they want you to vote on this subject? Um, I have several surgeries, actually. Um, I have quite a lot of demand for surgeries because I have a very large council estate in my constituency and quite a lot of need. There's three wards that are in the bottom 10% socioeconomically. And people do need the help of an MP with a whole range of issues. I hold them on Fridays and Saturdays because some people work those days and you have to make yourself accessible to others sometimes people come in to talk to me about say the brexit issue and you know i have a chance to face to face have a lengthy conversation about some of the things they've read in the press that may not be true and to challenge that and to show them an alternative point of view but also my job is also to listen to them and their concerns and let their concerns inform the decisions that i make so it's a completely two-way process Let's stand back a little bit from the details of Brexit, but still stay to some extent with party politics. Both your party and the Labour Party are divided now, and even ministers are talking about or threatening to resign, and some already have resigned, of course, some quite famous ones. Is this a sign that our present party system needs to change and we need a new centrist party? Or was the fate of the SDP a deterrent? So I think Parliament almost exactly reflects the problem in the country at large in that there's no clear majority for anything at the moment. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the parties are also divided. Um, certainly when I so, polled my correspondence from the 1st of December recently, it was one-third leave, one-third remain, one-third for a second referendum. So absolutely no clear majority. 
Um, and, it, and it does make normal politics quite difficult. But today, if I get the chance to present my amendment, I will be calling for some cross-party cooperation here. We're, we're clearly at an impasse. The negotiations are deadlocked. And I think it, you know, what it requires is you know, shifting the mindsets towards the position, perhaps away from the you know, government and opposition, and actually working on a cross-party basis to do something pragmatic, in the national interest. I feel that's what the country is sort of urging us to do. And I've really enjoyed working with my next-door neighbour, Jack Dromey. We're both actually negotiators, so we're the kind of people who do sit round a table and try and get a solution, and we need a few more of those. Now, you said you were a backbencher now, but there is a sense in which that's not entirely true. You're now the second estates commissioner for the Church of England. What does that mean, and what does that involve for you? Oh, yes. Because the Church of England is part of our constitution, um, it, it, if it wants to change its rules, its laws, these have to go through both houses of parliament. Obviously, there are plenty of bishops in the Lords who could do that, but my role is that of putting the legislation through in the House of Commons. So once every four weeks, I answer questions from my colleagues in all parties about what's happening in the Anglican Church. Incredibly wide-ranging questions. I mean, literally anything from bats in the belfry to what we're doing about the Yazidis. Just huge range. Actually, a lot of questions about the persecution of Christians, which is becoming an increasing problem. Do you have any responsibilities outside of the House of Commons in that role? Uh, not really, but I do visit uh, uh, churches. I'm often invited to visit them. Uh, the church commissioners, of which I'm one, have to look after the estate, and quite often the buildings are old and in need of repair. I think the Church of England has 75% of all listed buildings, I think. A phenomenal number of ancient buildings that are expensive to maintain, and we often have to um, see what can be done about uh, keeping a church, or well, making a church sustainable even. I find that work interesting uh, and it's complementary to what I do. And it also it aligns my faith and my politics. So I, I really enjoy bringing those two things together in this role. Now, in relation to those questions about Christian persecution, you've been snowed under with them lately, haven't you? Mm. Yeah. What, why is that? And why are they asking you rather than the Foreign Secretary? That's a very interesting question. And you're right, you know, the increasing number of questions to me are, you know, about um, the persecution of Christians in, in a range of continents, in Asia, in Africa, uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, and recently, in, a, in, a, in a, a, a prescient moment, one of the Labour backbenchers asked me about the Philippines, and only on Sunday we heard about a terrible massacre in a cathedral there. Um, I think that um, it's, it's a natural place for them to put the question to me, and then one of the things I can do is take it up with the Foreign Secretary. But I'm delighted to say that um, Jeremy Hunt, as a new incumbent at the Foreign Office, has actually decided to step up um, the work of the Foreign Office in relation to the persecution of Christians. And he, just before Christmas, he appointed the Bishop of Truro to look at the internal working of the Foreign Office on uh, addressing the persecution of Christians, to actually ask other governments how they deal with exactly the same issue so that we can learn best practice from other governments that may be tackling the persecution of Christians better than we are and also to ask the international development organisations that work in war zones and places where Christians are persecuted how they feel they get support or not from the Foreign Office. So I think the work of the Bishop of Truro is going to be very helpful in terms of tackling this issue better. And there is now a minister in the Foreign Office with a special responsibility for religious persecution, is there not? Yes, Lord Ahmed um, was uh, put in charge of uh, freedom of religion and belief, and that was that was even before the Bishop of Truro was appointed. And I think that, again, it shows the willingness of the Foreign Office to really pay attention to this issue. I think a decade ago, I felt prevailing attitudes were rather along the lines of, well, if there wasn't religion, we wouldn't have so many problems in the world. But I think the nature of the conflicts in the world today have made people realise that actually you need religious literacy. You need to understand the way the world's religions do impact on conflicts. I mean, sometimes it's the hijacking of religion for political ends, which, of course, the British know a great deal about from what happened in Northern Ireland. But not a sort of an effort to sort of blank out religion. I think, I think that's waning. And there's much more willingness now to really understand uh, other people's religions and how that affects geopolitics.
Caroline, you're a dame. What does that mean? What does that involve? So um, it's an honour that's conferred on me by the Queen um, and it reflects 22 years of public service. But I think actually it, it reflects a partnership between me and my constituency because obviously if they hadn't returned me several times, I wouldn't have 22 years of unbroken service for the Meriden constituency. Um, I was very touched by it. Um, in practice, it doesn't change anything. You don't get paid more or anything like that. Um, you get a lovely medal to wear on very special occasions, like, for example, the centenary of the armistice was an opportunity to wear these these medals, these honours. Um, but I think what it does is, is it makes me mindful of the need to be a good steward of my public office. So this is the equivalent of uh, Gary Streeter being made a knight? Yes. It is the equivalent to being Meghan Knight, but as my children are very quick to point out, that doesn't result in my husband becoming Lady Mark, although occasionally they tease him with that. <laughs> Caroline, thank you so much. Can we end this interview with a brief prayer for the nation? Would you lead us in that prayer? Yeah. So, Heavenly Father, on uh, yet another auspicious day in our Parliament here as we wrestle with how to rework our relationship with our neighbours on the continent of Europe. I do pray that you would call out the peacemakers in the debate and help the parliamentarians come together to find a solution to the changing nature of our relationship, one that reduces the, the cost to human livelihoods and I do pray we would find this solution soon for Jesus sake. Amen. That was Martin Eden in conversation with Dame Caroline Spellman. Thanks so much for joining us on The Profile this afternoon. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That is the publication that sponsors this show. If you enjoyed those interviews, you would love Premier Christianity magazine. If you would like to have a look at what we're doing, you can request a free copy of the latest edition of the magazine. Check out all the news, features, interviews and more. If you would like a free copy, just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Premier Playback is coming up next and we will see you at the same time, same place next week.